0: foundation arvind gupta the reason
1: that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years
0: enjoy this week's show welcome back to behind the markets here in sirius xm 132 i'm your host jeremy schwartz and this show with me is Lee Chen Ren, and I'd like to welcome our guest to the program. Lawrence Siegel is the Gary Brinson Director of Research at the CFA Institute Research Foundation. He's an independent consultant, writer, speaker, focusing on investment management. He's got an MBA in finance from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Fewer, Richer, and Greener, a very interesting look at the future, uh, and, and, Larry, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit what What motivated you to write the book? It's sort of a look, uh, sort of a more optimistic take on the the future of the global sort of economy here. What what, what motivated you to write this book?
1: Well, I felt like the world has been taken over by a doomsday cult, which is saying that all of the improvement that has taken place since the Industrial Revolution is about to stop and that we're all going to have a future if we have one at all. People are telling their children that. Uh, It's all baloney. And we face real problems, but not existential threats. Uh, We're probably in the best shape for uh, survival uh, that the species has ever been. And I wanted to say why I wanted to go back into the history and uh, look at the evidence and, and see if I could build the case.
0: Yeah. So we'll, we'll drill into, I think, some of the the parts I found the most interesting and, and sort of really focus on the long-term economic growth, progress, how do you measure progress. A lot of the issues that you bring up are very relevant to today's sort of political discourse. And, you know, you have a lot of the sort of framing the issues on and the environment is one of the big issues. The climate change. How are we managing that? Sort of income inequality. What are the solutions for that? And just a general track of progress. Any sort of you want to any one issue you want to start with that you think is uh, is worth 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 setting the stage of what is most relevant to today's political narrative as well.
1: Well, the political scene is pretty unpleasant. Uh, People are calling each other names uh, saying that they're not the loyal opposition, but the disloyal enemy. And that isn't conducive to finding solutions because solutions to large problems come from building a a consensus of most of the people around the solution. So I am kind of discouraged by the tone of the politics that I'm seeing, but that is A short-run problem. The long-run problem that has faced us most intensively over the last couple of generations is the population explosion. Uh, When I was a kid, there were 3 billion people. Now, there are about 7.5 billion, and that number is going to peak between 9.5 and and 11 billion later in the century. But earlier uh, in the Uh, not in this century, but in the 1960s and 70s, people like Paul Ehrlich were saying we were all going to starve to death. And now we're all going to, we're overeating. Uh, There's more food being produced than we can possibly use. And if it were distributed evenly, there would be no one starving anywhere in the world. And the population explosion is coming to an end rather than accelerating if people are having fewer children, including in surprising places like Iran and Brazil and Thailand and India and Mexico. Uh, only only East Africa is, the, uh, is there still a population explosion. So that problem got solved more or less, not completely through economic development as people get richer they have fewer children and the population gets under control that this is the way you want it to happen not the Malthusian way which is through death and disease and and war
0: yeah and, and I, I like the the sort of food that we're going to run out of foods we're going to have too many people uh, you know i like one of the things of talking about you know just how that ties into job growth and sort of if you go back 100 years ago everybody was farmers and if you would have had 95% reduction in farmers, what would you think all these people would be doing? Uh, There's sort of the pessimists who can't think about what those jobs are going to be and then actually we find ways to keep these people employed.
1: Well, much more productive ways. It, it turns out that the factory jobs paid much better and were much easier than the farm jobs, which were just brutal and had the highest death rate of any uh, uh Job type, I believe, still do, uh, and now the post-industrial office-type jobs have are they're, they're much easier. You sit in a chair in an air-conditioned office and uh, don't uh, get your hand caught in a machine. Um, we don't know what's coming after that. If we did, we would be after that. It would be, we, we can't forecast the future with that kind of certainty, but. We know that humans are adaptable and have a remarkable variety of, of talents and uh, will the unemployment rate has always come down to 4% in every business boom, despite a growing population and it will adjust again. I, if I knew what those jobs were going to be, I would tell you, but I, I know that a generation ago uh, that I would not have been able to say that I. Person could get a job as a GoPro experience designer, or a social media marketer, and a lot of people have those jobs now, and they're limited only by our imagination.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of the the one of the underlying undertones and fears that's very relevant in the political discussion is sort the, of the local manufacturing and where, you know, how unique it was for the U.S. Um, following the World War II. How that, you know, we were unique, where the, and, and sort of what that's done to sort of the upper middle class here in the U.S., as, as people might call it.
1: Well, it's uh, factory workers were never upper middle class. What it's done is to hollow out the lower middle class by uh, having almost literally every member of of that that class either join the upper middle class to a college and perhaps professional school or graduate school education or else join a lower class because they can't find anything to do that pays more than than a little above the minimum wage. The factory system in the United States had a remarkable advantage after World War II, which is that uh, we had blown up most of the factories in the rest of the world. And I'm not saying they didn't deserve it. Uh, you know, Germany and Japan picked a fight that was, uh, we, we had to win. But uh, those two countries, plus Britain and France, had industrial sectors that were out of business for a while, and we were in the monopoly position. So we could pay the workers well, charge an arm and a leg for for really mediocre products, if you remember those cars that required constant maintenance, and still make uh, profits. When when foreign competition, especially from the Japanese, came in in the 1970s, uh, the factory system in the U.S. was just decimated, and uh, they uh, started to have to compete with the rest of the world, and that's the normal condition. Uh, having a monopoly is not the normal condition, and uh, those, wa- those wages, at least in real terms, went down, and that, that's where we are now. But we, we had a, an upper middle class, uh, what I would call the educated class, that was maybe 3 or 4% of the population in the 1950s, and now it's 15 or 20%, so it, it sucked up all the smart people.
0: <laughs> Hi, yeah, uh, Larry. This is Li Chen. I uh, just want to follow up. Um, as you mentioned, you know, um, part of the min, uh, manufacturing, part of the reason that you know the world is getting richer, greener, is through specialization, you know, global supply chain. But in light of you know what's happening now with this virus which uh, clearly is challenging the, the global supply chain model. A, a lot of countries, even including, you know, uh, developed countries like France, have already said, you know, they don't want uh, any of these protective gears to be exported. Um, you know, uh, so this will definitely challenge the U.S. to do things. So how is that going to play into, into your uh, thesis?
1: Well, it's obviously a temporary disruption. Uh, we were completely unprepared in terms of having local sourcing uh, for protective devices, medication, um, medical equipment. The the planning ahead for a pandemic uh, was not done, and, and so we're we're stuck. Uh, it's not going to kill everybody. We're going to recover. Every- some point, basically, everybody's going to be exposed and they'll either get sick, a tiny fraction will die, most will recover, and then there'll be a herd immunity. It isn't going to happen again. So we have to realize that any kind of straight line growth uh, is going to be interrupted by wars, pandemics, bad weather, you know, the stuff happens. But in a couple of years, we will have more or less forgotten it, as we did SARS and MERS. And most people uh, will go on doing what they did before. Uh, it's, it's There is a case to be made for some domestic protective policies, not protectionist policies where we don't allow people to sell us things. Uh, that would be terrible. But if we build up our own reserve of... Certain kinds of uh, of industrial capacity, uh, then we won't have to worry about buying them from China or France. Or I mean, that's a second order effect. It's 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 like buying extra beans for your uh, for your house in case of a hurricane and you can't buy any food. That isn't your primary source of food. It's a backup but you
0: should do it. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Larry Siegel. He is the author of interesting new book, Fewer Richer Greener, The Prospects for Humanity in an Age of Abundance, sort of bringing a, you know, sort of countering the doomsday narrative uh, about, you know, how bad the world is that we live in. Um, You know, Larry, one of the things you talk a lot about is how we've really brought people out of poverty on a sort of global basis. You want to talk about a little bit about what, what... how what you think the actual narrative is here versus, you know, the, the sort of other narratives out there, and then what your specific recommendations were on how you could even further, you know, alleviate some of the big poverty issues we still have.
1: Well, from the beginning of recorded time until the Industrial Revolution, something like seven, 97 or 98% of the people in the world lived in poverty and what I would call extreme poverty conditions that we can seriously imagine. Uh, you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. Uh, you clearly didn't have a bathroom. Uh, there were no uh, medications. Even the rich lived in a type of poverty. Nathan Rothschild, who was the richest man in the world in the 1820s or 30s, died of a disease that would have been cured with one shot of penicillin. And yet the Penicillin wouldn't be invented for another hundred years. And the industrial revolution by combining several forces, uh, brought an increasing number of people out of poverty in the, what we now call the first world. And then later in the rest of the world. So what were those forces? First of all, an understanding Of basic liberal principles. You own yourself, so you have the right to sell your labor or whatever it is you have to sell to anybody that wants it. This is really what people call capitalism. Capitalism is nothing more than the idea that if you produce a resource, it's yours to do what you want with it. The the other major force is the rule of law and property rights. And If you can enforce the idea that when you own something, someone can't simply just take it away because they're bigger than you, then you've made a tremendous amount of progress toward economic growth. And then there's an incentive, obviously, for you to better yourself and make life easier for you, you and your children, and and the growth will simply take place. The third force is a democratization of knowledge. Books began to circulate in the 15th and 1600s after Gutenberg invented the printing press, but it didn't really catch on until later when uh, resources became cheaper and transportation became easier. By the Industrial Revolution, a large percentage of people in the advanced countries, England, the United States, the Netherlands, and so forth, were literate. And the knowledge that was produced in one place spread within a few weeks, that's how long it took to mail a letter by ship um, to the uh, other parts of the literate world. And so you had a a recipe for a takeoff in economic growth, and then it spread to the rest of Europe, really places like Germany by the middle of the 1800s and to Japan, Uh, and then in this century, not this century, but in the 20th century, uh, China basically uh, committed cultural suicide for a period of time, and then emerged from that uh, when, when Deng Xiaoping became the leader and has uh, grown at a rate like nothing else we've ever seen. And it's joined the, uh, the industrial world in a, in a remarkable way. India is now doing it, and we're seeing these kinds of changes in Africa, and Bangladesh, Vietnam, all over the place. So this is really the age of democratization, of, a, of a, a process that started in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Yeah, well, and it's about time.
0: Yeah. One of the uh, the sort of interesting points you had in in the chapter on the mismeasurement of growth, you sort of talked about, and this is one of those questions on, you know, how do you actually measure growth? And there's all these questions about these adjustments they make. To GDP and the quality adjustments they talk about, and, and you gave the example of what it costs to buy a Model T car, uh, you know, sort of one year salary versus what it's what you're buying today, also about one year salary on average. Um, but sort of talk through how you see the mismeasurement of that in in a lot of ways.
1: Well, the easiest example is a cell phone. If you take all the apps on your cell phone and you go back only to 1980, where a lot of people listening were alive and you try to price all the stuff that it does. Well, The telephone isn't very expensive, but it also is a tape recorder. It is a fairly expensive camera because it it takes pictures about as well as, as a good camera did at that time. It is a uh, device for calling a car Uber or Lyft. Uh, It is a very fast computer. you you can compute or do whatever kind of calculations you need to do uh, faster on your cell phone than you could have with a mainframe back in 1980. And in in my book, I go over about, you know, there's there's a picture of about 16 different gadgets. They would have filled a large room and cost, if you included the Cray supercomputer, uh, more than a million dollars. And, If you leave out the supercomputer, it was something like $20,000 and now it all fits in a cell phone, which is a thousand dollars at the most. Well, does this go into our measure of GDP growth? No, it's actually a decrease. People stop buying this room full of gizmos and instead pay a thousand dollars for a cell phone and it shows a decrease in spending. So we've gotten negative growth out of that sector in the data, but not in reality where we've gotten positive growth. It it certainly has every kid in middle school having a crazed supercomputer in their pocket. uh, was uh, Nobody could have possibly imagined it, so they couldn't put the price of that into the CPI. And uh, the fact that you can also order a cup of coffee from it And then a car to drive you to pick up the coffee and then make an airplane reservation and talk on the phone or have a video conference with somebody on the other side of the world do all this for quote unquote free you know there's some hidden costs but they aren't much money that that is real growth in the economy that shows up as negative growth because we measure economic performance by the amount of money people spend, So that's that, that's where the conflict is.
0: Um, now how do you think about the environment changing over time? Like how, where do you see there's a big effort on in the investment world a push towards ESG and sustainability? Uh, how do you see progress in, in sort of these fronts and, and where what's that going to look like going forward?
1: Well, the big challenge is climate change, because it requires cooperation of almost everybody in the world, and we're going to need more energy before we need less energy. Uh, There are people in Kenya, which is not particularly a poor country in Africa, for the standard of Africa, uh, who send their children out to gather wood instead of sending them to school because they need the energy to cook and heat their houses. And these indoor fire uh fires or whatever they build them in aren't vented and the smoke actually kills more people than malaria in that country. So do you want to ask these people not to participate in the electrification that's going on in in, in Africa because of climate change. I, I just don't have the heart to do that. I, I want them to be able to develop to a decent level of, of living. So what we need to do is find ways to accelerate an energy transition away from burning carbon sources to other sources. And those are nuclear, solar and wind, and other kind of exotic things like geothermal and 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 ocean based energy technologies by far. The most promising one is nuclear because we already know how to do it. Safety is the, uh, is the main variable and convincing people that it is safe is the hardest part. Uh, 11,000 people died in coal mining accidents in the last century. Uh, only one outside of Chernobyl, which was a bureaucratic, catastrophe. Uh, only one person died in a nuclear power accident other than in Chernobyl where, where many died. So we, we need to build up our nuclear capacity fast. Uh, the amount of energy that the world is going to use when the entire world lives at a lower middle class or better standard is about five times what we have now. And there isn't enough carbon in the world to do it. So we're forced into an energy transition. Climate change is yet another reason why we should do that.
0: So uh, we've been uh, sort of good broad cross-section of, of sort of introducing the book. Any points uh, what you know that you'd want to point people to in terms of big picture takeaways, this more optimistic look on the future uh, versus the doomsday world here?
1: Well, I'd like people to stop telling their children that, the world that they've inherited from us is terrible and not worth living in. It's really a bad way to tr- to treat anyone, especially if it isn't true. You could have told your children in 1700 that you're going to have to work on a farm until your body breaks down and then die, and that that world isn't worth living in. But I don't remember people saying that. Now that we've achieved a moderately affluent society on average, half of the population of the world is middle class for the first time in history. It seems like the world is more worth living in than it ever has been before. And we can cure most of the diseases that kill you before you're 70 or even 80. Uh, We can ride around in comfort in various kinds of vehicles instead of having to walk behind a horse that's dragging your possessions to, to a new location after you uh, decided to, to move somewhere to, to find more fertile land. Uh, we can talk on the phone. If you wanted to call your mother 60 years ago, you had to spend a fortune on a long-distance call if she lived in, say, France. And now it's a, a Skype or zoom call it's free and if we were a hundred years ago you had to write her a letter and it would get there in two or three weeks couldn't call your mother no matter what you did so the, these improvements are taken for granted just people seem to only focus on what the threats are and say that this world is just barely livable and and it's going to become unlivable because some things will get worse right And it's so wrong to to teach a generation of children to to fear and hate the future and be sorry that they were ever born. And and we're hearing that from from children, from their psychologists, from their teachers. Sometimes the teachers are the ones telling them this. Let's just stop. Teach them how to solve real problems, how to identify real problems and distinguish them from things you can't do anything about or... From things that are
0: actually advantages. Well, that is and a this, that's a very good way to end uh, our conversation. I think it's uh, a great positive message. People looking forward to sort of very bright future. And uh, it was a really great book on called Fewer, Richer, Greener. It's been a great conversation with Larry Siegel, who is the Gary Brinson Director of Research at the CFA Institute Research Foundation. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.